You're listening to episode 48 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on writing, reading, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Today on the podcast, I've got something a little bit different. It's another monologue, but I want to take a look at some of the ways that scripture has impacted my writing. Every week as a pastor, I'm spending time in the biblical text, studying passages of scripture, preparing myself to preach them. And more and more, I'm impressed by the quality of the writing that I find in scripture. More and more, it's also having an impact on who I am as a writer. I thought it might be nice throughout 2019 to spend some time looking at passages that have had a particular impact on me as a writer. Hope you enjoy. For the last seven years, I've been preaching through books of the Bible. When we planted Bent Oak Church, one of my goals was to help the congregation develop a stronger sense of the overarching biblical storyline. A lot of Christians may know the story of David and Goliath, or something about Isaiah's throne room vision, or the dramatic story of Paul's shipwreck, but how each of those stories fit into a larger story, that's where things start getting less clear. So, we started with Genesis, and worked our way into the story. After every couple of Old Testament books we accomplished, we'd jump into the New Testament for one. Every preacher and congregation has their own pace when it comes to preaching through books of the Bibles. Ours is probably somewhere in the middle. I'm about to finish the book of Acts, which has taken us close to 30 weeks. But in the last seven years, we've been able to cover Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, as well as the Gospel of Mark, 1st Corinthians, Revelation, and now Acts. I knew this approach to preaching straight through the biblical story would strengthen my own knowledge of the Bible, but I had no idea how much I would come to appreciate the narrative craft of the stories that are included. It's been one of the benefits of working on my own writing while also preaching every week. It's opened my eyes to just how well-written the Bible is. I'm convinced too many pastors don't take the time to appreciate the Bible's craft, And like any great work of literature, recognizing the author's moves often provides powerful insights into the work's deeper meanings. There's so much more to these biblical stories than simple three-step life applications. Being January, a lot of people are beginning their yearly read through the Bible. We tend to read the Bible as a big stack of pages, sometimes losing sight of the unique voices and storytelling within them. If you want to mix things up this year, why not take one of the great books of the Bible and spend an entire year reading it? Work out all of the structures and the details of how it's been written and put together by the author. For instance, take the books of Samuel. If you're looking for a recommendation, the two books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, originally one story together, they're a great story to work on. I'm convinced they are some of the best literature in the world. The interwoven stories of Saul and David are massively rich in detail and suspense and foreshadowing and character development and deeply nuanced themes. They are every bit as psychologically insightful as Dostoevsky and as memorable as any childhood fable you grew up listening to. My son loves to talk about David, and so do I. In some future episode, I'm going to try to explain some of the points that I think make 1st and 2nd Samuel such a remarkable book and the things I love about them. Recognizing the skill of these biblical authors, though, these bits of the Bible's literary craft— Occasionally, they make it into my sermons, but sometimes spending 10 minutes describing how an author juxtaposes two characters to highlight the subtle differences, it's a bit much for a Sunday morning. So I'm hoping bringing them here to this podcast is a perfect fit. I'm actually somewhat surprised how infrequently these observations get pointed out. There are exceptions. I love the work that Robert Alter does, including his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. I found the Barrett Olam commentaries on the Old Testament to be helpful for some of the books. And I think N.T. Wright does a particularly good job of 
pointing out all of the ways the literary quality of the narrative affects reading the passage. Wright has actually hinted before at being a Jane Austen fan, so maybe that's part of it. I've recently been recommending the book The Art of X-Ray Reading and getting some feedback from listeners that they're enjoying it. It mines all of the classics of fiction to teach writing. I think there's a place for that same kind of attention given to the biblical text, both for the writer and for the Christian wanting to more deeply understand the biblical books and the authors who wrote them. So what I want to offer you today is one of my favorite literary moves in scripture and what you can learn from it for your own writing. It's just a start, just one scripture, but hopefully more of these to come. So lesson one, what to include and what to cut. Learning structural decisions from Luke's book of Acts. I think one of the greatest challenges in writing is figuring out what needs to be written and what needs not to be. I know in my own writing, I can get obsessed with some point and spend pages working it out, loving the writing that I'm doing, only in a later editorial read to recognize that it's an off-ramp to some side street heading in a totally different direction than my main goal. The writing can be good, really good, some of my best, but it's not working for the larger work. It has to go. As Hemingway described it, This book began magnificently, went on very well for a long way with great stretches of great brilliance, and then went on endlessly in repetitions that a more conscientious and less lazy writer would have put in the wastebasket. I'm convinced good writing is knowing what not to write. Knowing how to, as so often the saying is repeated, kill your darlings, to make cuts, even ones that you love. Just because you like it, and it's some of your best writing, doesn't mean that it should stay. Every sentence has to be contributing to the bigger work, every paragraph moving the point forward, every story included for a purpose. That's not nearly as easy as you might first think. And there's always the risk that while you're in this process of cutting, you might cut something good, or maybe you're missing something important altogether. There's always the risk that you've written what is expected, even required, but missed what really needs to be said. Too often, this is a characteristic that I think plagues Christian writing in particular. We know what is right, we know what we should say, and sometimes that's all we say. Saying the right things, but not finding the right way to say them. The biblical authors are constantly faced with this predicament. Write the story of your people and God's interaction with them across generations. Work out the theological and rich dimensions of Emmanuel, God with us, incarnate, Do it in a format that can fit feasibly in a one-year reading calendar. Maybe no one faced that task with such audacity as Luke. Over the last few months, I've really been struck by how Luke compiled the book of Acts. Originally a part of the Gospel of Luke, the two are a part of a massive undertaking. Tell the entire story of Jesus and the early church and the missionary travels of Paul, as well as Paul's arrest and imprisonment and move to Rome. And, in the process, write it all to some Theophilus convincingly accurate and moving enough to have an impact on his personal life. Luke tells us he spent a great deal of time gathering eyewitness accounts and details from the events that he records. I imagine he had a pretty big stack of content he was working from. John at one point lamented that there weren't enough books to record everything Jesus had said, and Luke has doubled the number of primary documents he's working through, Jesus' life being just the first half of the story. We know there are a lot of stories that Luke does not cover in his account. Big ones and small ones. Take, for instance, the massive fundraising effort that Paul led on his third missionary journey. It's mentioned all over Paul's letters, but not a word of it in Luke or Acts. It's likely Luke was even with Paul during part of that missionary journey and the collection process. 
whatever impulse Luke must have felt to include something that important, some bigger editorial drive led him to actually keep it out. But there is a literary move Luke has included that has fascinated me. Luke is dealing with big, epic, large-scale events, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the ascension of Jesus, heated church councils, the first martyrdoms and imprisonments, voyages across open oceans, axes littered with great and important names like Peter and Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, and Herod Agrippa and Felix and Festus, some of the world's greatest cities, Caesarea and Athens and Ephesus, Corinth, Jerusalem, Rome itself by the end of the book. But there are also some less familiar names that make it into the story. They are actually, in the end, some of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Names like Tabitha or Rhoda or Eutychus. None of their stories are long. None of them have any impact on the overall plot of Acts. But each of those names fall at a pivotal moment in the story. I'm convinced it's a literary move that Luke is obsessed with. And once you notice it, you recognize the profound effect it has on the way he narrates Acts. Subtle, but distinctly Luke, and maybe even distinctly Christian. Let me quickly show it to you. One of the most dramatic scenes in Acts is Peter's vision of a descending sheet full of unclean food, a picnic of pulled pork and bird ends, and a divine voice saying, take and eat. As also predicted, visitors immediately arrive and invite Peter to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile Roman military official. It's one of the more dramatic scenes in Acts, something Luke obviously wanted to include in the story. And it follows immediately after the similarly dramatic scene of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. In both cases, God is manifesting himself through a divine voice. The implications of these two events are massive for the storyline of Acts. But tucked between the two tectonic narrative shifts is the humble story of Tabitha, Dorcas being her Greek name. She is described as a seamstress, known simply for her acts of kindness to others, humble qualities, and a modest job. She had apparently been sick and died. Her body was washed and prepared for burial. We aren't told how old she was, but sickness that led to death was hardly an uncommon occurrence in the ancient world. Still, her friends pleaded for Peter to come. He stopped in, and Luke tells us that they took him upstairs and showed him all of the shirts and the coats that Tabitha had made. Herod had his temples and palaces, mountain fortresses and city projects. Tabitha, her knit coats and muslin smocks. Peter emptied the room and called Tabitha back to life. We're then told Peter stayed in the town for many days, living with Simon, who was a tanner, as humble as a seamstress. Tabitha, and Simon for that matter, are never mentioned again in Acts. Her resurrection changes nothing in the overall story. Against the backdrop of Saul's conversion and Cornelius' salvation and filling with the Holy Spirit, Tabitha and Simon seem so pedestrian. But Luke puts them right in the middle and gives them the dignity of names. Preaching through these stories, trying to keep up the pace and match my congregation's instincts, my first inclination was to skip the Tabitha story. It makes sense to move from Paul to Peter. But then I got to asking myself, so why does Luke include it? And why does he put it here between the two events? The second example gets even better. The story opens with an equally dramatic scene involving again Peter. Herod was ratcheting up persecution on the church, killing James by the sword and imprisoning Peter. Chained in some Palestinian dungeon, Peter awoke in the middle of the night to an angel commanding him to follow. Peter believed that the whole thing was a vision. 
as he walked through locked doors and past prison guards, were specifically told that a massive iron gate miraculously swung open before Peter to simply stroll through. And once outside of the prison, Peter finally realized that it had all been real. He was, in fact, free. He immediately rushed to a friend's house where he correctly guessed many of the early Christians would be gathered together praying for him. Here, he ironically found the door to that friend's house locked. Knocking, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I'm assuming, being the middle of the night, she asked who it was without opening the door for good reason. She immediately, though, recognized Peter's voice. Still having left the door closed and locked, we're told that she, in her joy, did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It kicked off a several-sentence dispute between the guests and her about the possibility of that claim. Eventually, they all went and unlocked the door and found that it was, in fact, Peter still standing outside. Now, don't miss it. Peter, who had just walked through locked prison gates, got locked out of his friend's house. I can't help but imagine him standing there waiting for someone to let him in. And Rhoda, I love Rhoda, she was so excited by Peter's safety and return that she simply forgot to let him in. There's nothing critical about that detail in the story. You could delete Rhoda, you could delete the whole locked house scene, and the story works just as well. In some ways, it actually detracts from the truly miraculous details of the story. So why highlight the locked door at the friend's house? Why highlight Rhoda, who makes the mistake? Why not focus on the massive, miraculous opening prison gate? But then again, I've started to suspect that this is all a part of Luke's intentions. Luke is including something with intentionality. Once again, he forces the humblest of characters into the middle of a dramatic story and offers them the respect of a name and a place in the plot. One more example. One of the most important plot turns in Acts is Paul's resolve to return to Jerusalem. Luke seems to intentionally structure Paul's actions as an overlap of Jesus's turning his face towards Jerusalem, which is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. The stakes at this point in the story of Acts are massive. There are assassination plots against Paul, warnings of what awaits him in Jerusalem, friends who urge him not to go. There have been riots in Ephesus and conflicts boiling over in Corinth. The suspense is at its highest in the whole book. The trip begins with a list of associates and ports that Paul hits along the way. As a reader, we assume that the trip is well underway and that Jerusalem is our next destination. That is until Paul stops in at Troas and begins to preach, preaching till midnight, in fact. Suddenly, the travelogue narrative style is broken up by descriptive lines like, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. You can imagine the warm, ambient glow of flickering wicks and lamps, the smell of melting and burning olive oil, the heat of a house packed full of bodies seated on floors and standing in corners, the sound of several hours of Paul's preaching, expositions of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And just then we meet Eutychus, a young man sitting in a window on the third floor. We're told that he was overcome by sleep. In Greek, it's a kind of idiom. He was carried away into sleep. His sleep causes him to fall from the third-story window to his death. Paul leaves his sermon and embraces the boy, speaking life back into him, resurrects him in the middle of the service. And what does Paul do? He goes back to the front, serves communion, and goes back to preaching until daylight, at which point he sets sail again. We're back headed towards Jerusalem. Eutychus and Troas are never mentioned again in the story. The boy's death has no perceivable impact on Paul's plans, his itinerary, or anything else in Acts. 
If we can be honest for a moment, that's a really strange interruption in the story. But now that we've read carefully enough and began to see the way that Luke has done this before, we can recognize it as something so particularly Luke. Another humble, named character inserted into the middle of the epic drama. Nothing important happens, unless, of course, you're Eutychus. And there is also that brilliant inclusion of his name. His name means well-fated, the lucky one. It's too much for Luke not to pass up, who couldn't include it. And is there anything more humble than our own inability to beat sleep? Take the words attributed to the poet Edgar Allan Poe. Sleep, those little slices of death, oh how I loathe them. Sleep may seem like such a little thing given the threats of death facing Paul. But worked this way, it actually fits perfectly into the broader narrative. Paul faces the likelihood of his own death, Eutychus, the unbeatable force of tiredness. But life is the final word of the story. For Eutychus, it's true. And by careful literary implications, so is it also true for Paul. I've never sailed across the Mediterranean with circling plots against my life, but I have fallen asleep in a church sermon before. So too, Paul's story becomes Eutychus's story, and it also becomes mine. I think Luke offers interruptions like these for a very important reason. It isn't enough to recount the drama. Luke is determined to work in common lives of faith all across the story. He offers these nobody lives the respect and honor of real names, their names recorded alongside Paul and Peter's. The implications of that are staggering. We all want to be Paul, especially those of us who might actually happen to be missionaries or pastors. But so much more of our lives look like Tabitha's, the simple crafts we've produced for friends. Or Rhoda, remembered for her excitement that produces an embarrassing mistake. Or Eutychus, as passionate and determined as he might be, beaten by the weakness of his own heavy eyelids. But here's what I think Luke wants us to see. Their names are recorded not for their achievements, but by the way in which the Holy Spirit works their lives, fits them into the massive expanding plot of salvation, the epic tale of the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. The story is never so big that it overwhelms the simplest lives of regular people, hardly, Instead, it fits them into it, propels them into the bigger story. And that message is at the very center of Paul's story. Words that he gives like, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul can ultimately say that because like Luke, he recognizes that this is the story of the Holy Spirit which happens to be the way that Luke opens the book of Acts. He writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, hinting that this second book are the things that Jesus now continues to do. These stories are not included simply because they happened. Much more surely happened. Maybe miracles even greater than these. But these stories are included because Luke has a specific goal. There is something he is trying to say, and these stories help him say it. He's made the decision about what to include and what to take out. So what can you learn from all this? Well, personally and spiritually, I think there's a lot. But there's also a moment worth taking to reflect on how well-crafted the book of Acts is. Luke is a good writer, and he can have an impact on your own writing. You don't get all of this by haphazardly piecing together a bunch of stories. Luke has obviously thought long and hard about how to structure the story. The big question being what to include. 
He has made some very, very careful decisions about what to include and what to keep out. He's chosen to include stories that we might not have thought to and cut stories that we wish we had more details on. There's something here in Luke's craft that I desperately want to be true of my writing as well. Luke grounds his writing in details big and small. Kings and seamstresses, miracles and mistakes, martyrdom and sickness, glorious visions and tired, sleepy eyes. The miracles never belittle the everyday, and the everyday never overwhelms the miraculous. Luke recounts a story epic enough to reorient history itself, but still humble enough to play out in homes and around dinner tables. After all, don't forget, the opening scene is the Holy Spirit leaving the golden-plated temple places for a stuffy rented upper room. The same Holy Spirit will show up again and again along dirt roads and in houses of the rich and poor. It will be poured out on Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. How as a Christian writer do you go about capturing that miraculous and awesome glory of God, pulling it also down into the realities of couches and dining room conversations? That is for me at least the task of Christian writing, to elevate the imagination into the throne room of God and at the same time to open the eyes to the Holy of Holies in my own three-bedroom, two-bath. There may be no better writing coach for doing that than Luke. So think about your own writing. What needs to get cut? And also, what needs to be said that you haven't yet said? Thanks for listening to the Pastor Writer Podcast. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 48. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate you taking a moment to leave a review. Reviews are the best way for me to get feedback about the show and also to help new listeners find it. You also might consider sharing it. If you enjoyed this episode or another, post it on Twitter or Facebook. It's a great way for me to help get exposure for the episode. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.